You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Wednesday, February 3rd, 2021, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Epsilon Theory's Ben Hunt. And then our CEO and co-founder, Rao Powell, speaks to Miami Mayor Francis Suarez about blockchain and economic development in Miami. One final note, stay tuned after the show for a sneak peek into tomorrow's Bitcoin in the Real World, a one-day event we are co-hosting with BlockFi. Thank you for joining us on Real Vision. You know, I'm a huge fan of Miami. I've got a place there in and out all the time because I live in the islands and uh, I love it. One of the things that always struck me is Miami needs to diversify its economy. And suddenly you've put your head above and said, look, this is how we can do it. I think it's amazing. I think Miami really needed it. What, what is your vision and why did you come to it? That's exactly right. I mean, we have been traditionally a, a three or four industry city, a construction, a tourism, a finance. And I think uh, I, I was the first generation that really grew up with technology. You know, we, you know I was, I'm 43 now. We had the personal computer growing up. Um, and now, you know, we grew up with the first ones to really have, you know, iPhones and smartphones. And uh, it became very apparent to me early on in my life that the future of our economy was going to be tech-based. So every city uh, in America, and frankly, every city in the world, should be doing the same thing I'm doing. They should be trying to grow the ecosystem of tech companies and founders and, you know, innovative people and creative people um, and entrepreneurs in their city. I mean, that's what's going to fuel uh, the growth for the future. That's what's going to provide high-paying jobs for the children of, of today and tomorrow. So for me, it was really natural. We've been trying to do it for 10 years. And obviously, we just recently caught lightning in a bottle. So that, that's, that's been our J-curve moment. Yeah, I mean, really, if you get this right, you can change the lives of a lot of people. Because, you know, we've seen it. Old industries die off. And you can't survive trying to protect an old industry. You have to change. The only thing uh, that stays the same is change. <laughs> the only thing that's constant is change. And in a world like ours, where disruptions are happening faster and are more profound and are radically changing the way we make decisions, the way we live, the way our quality of life is impacted, I completely agree with you. You have to be nimble. You have to be flexible and adaptable. And that's really the whole concept behind resiliency. You know, we started resiliency as a concept based on climate and based on our adaptation to climate phenomena. And now we've realized that uh, resiliency is, is a mindset. It's really something a lot more, a lot deeper than just uh, climate resiliency. It's, it's being resilient to uh, outside threats, to crime, to terrorism, to economic shocks, uh, anything that the world can throw at you. And I think uh, I would be doing a major disservice to my community, to, which I grew up in. I'm the first mayor of Miami elected uh, that was born in Miami. I would be doing a huge disservice to my community if I didn't do what I'm doing right now and do it to the best of my abilities. So if you were to go forwards 10 years, where would you be? What, 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 what is happening? How has Miami changed? 
Well, I think what's going to happen is it's something that's never happened before. You have a confluence of factors that have never, in my opinion, conspired uh, in a moment like this. One of them is you have uh, everything that's going on in New York with hedge funds and private equity fleeing the city in droves. And you have the same exact phenomenon happening on the West Coast in San Francisco and the Bay Area uh, with founders, uh, venture capitalists, and, uh, and, and designers and, and product producers of, of technology coming in droves. That synergy, that confluence of two mega markets uh, converging in one city really has never happened. So we don't know precisely what the cross-pollinization impact is going to be of having PEs that look at life now from sort of a VC perspective and VCs that look at life from a, from a private equity perspective. But I can tell you this, there's going to be a ton of capital. I don't know that there will be another city on the planet with, with a greater aggregation of capital. And I was uh, doing an interview uh, in one of my Cafecito Tech Talks with Marcelo Claude, who announced a $100 million Miami-specific fund last week. And he was saying, you know, for companies to grow, they need two things, talent and capital. And that's it. And so uh, we're going to have the best of both in the city. And so what do I think is going to happen in the next 10 years? I think that Miami is going to become, my humble opinion is that it's going to become the most globally important city in the country, potentially in the world. I mean, Texas did a good job with this years ago when they really attracted a lot of Fortune 500 companies. So is your vision here to get the companies to locate, not just the capital? Because the capital, you know, that's nice. It can move around. It doesn't really employ people. What you actually need is these businesses to move here. What do you think about that? Our our strategy is comprehensive, Raul. Our strategy is we love to get what I call anchor tenants, right? Big companies. uh, You know, I, I firmly believe that if Amazon and if Tesla... We're looking at their relocation um, uh, you know, proposals now in this particular moment. They both would have picked Miami. That's what I firmly believe. I think that's, that's how synergistic this moment is. That's how impactful this moment is. But I think you know, we are working on big companies. We're working on big people, right? Because big people create big companies. You know, oftentimes what's happening is with these big founders, they've created these massive companies and they're like, we want to find the new place, the place where we can start from scratch. We want to, we want to find the place that's hungry. Uh, we want to find the people that are entrepreneurial. We want to look at new markets. And I think that's the other thing about Miami that's different from, let's say, Austin. You know, Austin is, it's a, you know, there's nothing wrong with Austin, uh, but it's in the middle of the country. It's not really an international city. And when you look at Miami as a hub, you're talking about a city that is, uh, you know, that is connected not only to the United States, but it's connected to South America, Europe, and Asia, all by direct flights. That's something that there are very few cities in America that can claim that. Yeah, totally right. The other thing, part of your vision is, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, what made you come up with that as part of your strategy? I mean, it's pretty forward thinking to be in government and thinking along these lines. Well, I'm a finance uh, major. Uh, I've always been into finance, uh, you know, as, as, as a field of study. My father's an engineer. My grandfather was a dean of engineering. So we're very mathematical. And I've always, um, and, and I understand the concept. Uh, I understand the concept of the blockchain. I understand the concept of, of Bitcoin or, or any cryptocurrencies. And frankly, I think that there is a, a tremendous amount of potential there. And I think one of its main issues is, is being more and more mainstream. So for me, um, uh, since I believe in it, uh, being able to push it in my city, I think it does a few things. The first is it makes it more mainstream, which helps it in its evolution. And number two, uh, it, may, it, it puts the city in, 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 the, in the spotlight. You know, I, I put up Satoshi's white paper uh, just a, a week ago as the first city, uh, uh, first government in North, North America to do it. I think we we're second in the world after Estonia. And just, just that simple act, which is very basic, very simple. I think my tweet got almost 3 million impressions. 
I mean, that is unbelievable for one tweet. That's even more impressions than I got in the how can I help tweet. So um, it, it really goes to show how robust, how in tune the crypto community is in the blockchain community. It is incredibly fervent. Um, they pay attention, they're smart, and they're positive, which is something that I love. Yeah, and they, they don't have a home. There's no hub for this. They do now, they do now. Yeah, and that's, that's super exciting. What did other parts of the government say to you when you started rolling out this strategy in Bitcoin? I mean, because people are worried about the regulation and stuff like that, but I'm thinking, well, if Miami's doing this, you know, there's not that much pushback centrally. Yeah, and I think that's when you lead, uh, there's always, um, you know, first of all, we're lucky. We're not completely leading. I mean, Wyoming has done a, a phenomenal job. Yeah. Um, there, you know, I, I found out that Seminole County in Florida had been accepting tax payments by crypto. You know, so what you end up finding out is that there are other pioneers who are just maybe not as well known as we are. And so it's great for us because we get to sort of, we're the big name, we're the splashy big name that comes in and says, hey, we're doing all this. And we look like we're the first ones that have done it. But the truth is we're, we're taking bits and pieces from other people who have done it slightly before us. Um, but I think we're the ones that have the most notoriety and we're doing it in the biggest fashion. Yeah, I just think all of this, you know, the, one of the defining qualities of Miami is this vibrancy. It's difficult to know unless you know the city, right? It's Absolutely. super vibrant. Yep. You know, it's a city of hopes and dreams for many. Um, and this whole thing kind of plays into Miami's strengths so perfectly. I agree. You know, it's funny. I've always thought of Miami as kind of a Casablanca. You know, that in, in the midst of the chaos, there's this city where people just sort of say, hey, nobody's fighting here. We're going to have a good time. You know, this is the place where people have, you know, enjoy their life and, and nobody can can penetrate that. This is not a place for politics. This is not a place for this is a place for quality of life. And I think in, in, a, in a modern day world, that is what people are looking for. They're looking for premium quality of life. They're looking for experiences. And, and frankly, if they can do all the other serious things that they want to do in their life from a place where they can have a premium quality of life, I think Miami is going to shine. It's going to continue to grow exponentially over the years. Totally agree. So if people want to find out more, where, can, where should they go? Well, there's a, lot, a few places they could go. The first place I would recommend they go is my Twitter account. Uh, people often ask me, where's Miami Sand Hill Road? And I say, it's my Twitter account. You know, that's, I'm creating a virtual meeting place. So it's at Francis Suarez. Um, we're launching today uh, that how can I help campaign? So, you know, obviously it's, a lot of this started with the, my famous tweet of uh, Tadellian from the Founders Fund of, you know, what if we brought Silicon Valley to Miami? And I tweeted back, how can I help? That's what sort of created all this madness. Uh, today we're launching our How Can I Help website. So that's howcanihelpmia.com. And we're selling shirts, all kinds of swag to raise money uh, for a, a tech, iTech Academy preparatory school in an inner city uh, to promote coding and robotics teaching uh, to make sure that every single child in the city of Miami has an opportunity to be successful. So we want to make sure that as we bring more tech and create this incredible ecosystem, that we're also building the foundation so that our children can enjoy it and can create wealth and prosperity for their own families. Brilliant. Look, I think it's a brilliant vision. I'm proud to be a, you know, a part-time resident in Miami. And I'm just, I think you're doing an amazing job. We love you. It's really cool. So thanks so much for coming to talk to us about it and check in again at some point and let us know how it's all going. Anytime, Raul. It'll be a pleasure to do it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. 
Ben, it's such a pleasure to have you on Real Vision Daily Briefing. Great to be here, Ash. Great to be back on Real Vision. You know, you've been one of our favorite guests uh, for years. I think you've been coming oh, thank out you. around 2014 and doing these <laughs> uh, great deep dives uh, into uh, your thesis about what's happening in the world. And today, it's great to have you on Real Vision Daily Briefing so we can talk a little bit more about things that are happening in the news cycle. By the way, if you're new to finance and you're not familiar uh, with Ben's newsletter, Epsilon Theory, uh, many of the smartest people I know and some of the smartest people in the space read it religiously. Check it out. Uh, and uh, Ben is also a demon on Twitter uh, about some <laughs> of the things that are happening right now. You know, Ben, the, the two things that, that I'm really curious to get your view on uh, are one, what's happening with the virus, because you've written so eloquently and analytically about what's happening in that space. Uh, and number two, what's happening in market dynamics. You know, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to get your view uh, on both of those subjects is because you're a triple threat. You have this unique series of skills. Uh, you know, for people who don't know, you have a PhD from Harvard in government, so you understand the government response component of this. Obviously, you are someone who has been a longtime investor, CIO involved in markets, and you also have a very strong background in econometrics uh, and game theory. So you understand the statistical basis of what's happening in both of these incredibly quantitative fields. So with that, Ben, tell us when you look at what's happening in the world right now, what do you see? Yeah, well, well, first of all, I'd say you know, thank you for that 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 introduction. I I think it just kind of proves I I can't keep a job for very long. But um, <laughs> you know, the 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 I find the most one of the most interesting things about both the virus and about market structure is it doesn't require a PhD in econometrics to get this stuff. You know, it really doesn't. It's um, it's it's high school math, frankly, and you know, my first writing about the novel coronavirus was almost exactly a year ago. And it was based on high school math. It was looking at the numbers that were coming out of China, that were being reported by China. And, you know, the my observation was that, look, this is not how a virus works. That the numbers that were being reported, you know, have about as much chance as being the accurate reporting of a novel virus, you know, spreading in an exponential function and then achieving a sub-exponential function as uh, containment measures are put in the like, that, you know, the, the numbers we were seeing had about as much chance of being from that as, you know, our sun going Nova tomorrow morning. It was, it, it was ridiculous. The numbers were clearly being made up. And it was that combined with some, some other data points that we were receiving that, led me to, to, to first start writing about the coronavirus almost exactly one year ago today. Oh. And, uh, you know, from there, it was writing about the, the failed response of the World Health Organization. From there was the failed response of the U.S. government. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of failing to go around, unfortunately. Yeah. And now here we are a year later with a situation that, from a market perspective, is, look, it's, it, it's not like late February of last year when there was such massive complacency and the potential, we didn't have the Fed facilities in place, the market supporting facilities that were put in place in March. I don't see the same sort of systemic massive correction in the market being a potential today as I saw last February. But I will tell you, Ash, that the you know, because what we we study a lot is narrative and 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 how the 
you know, what's happening in media. And that's how we, we, we gauge whether something is being complacent or being, you know, alarmist. Right? right now, there's an enormous amount of complacency regarding the variants, the virus variants, yeah. uh, particularly the, the UK variant, the B117 variant, that is clearly ensconced in the United States, is clearly beyond just the case here and case there perspective. Now it looks like it's it's at least 2%, and this is something that doubles every week, about 2% of all cases in Florida. So when when I when I'm looking at the the data and the numbers, and again this isn't this is high school math, this isn't you know PhD math. When you look at the numbers, uh, when you do the math, when you look at the biology of this virus, and <laughs> maybe most tellingly, the experience of so many other countries with this virus. My my projection, my belief, is that we've got frankly, a great deal of complacency both in markets and in politics regarding the spread of these variants. Yeah. You know, Ben, it's so interesting that you should say that. I uh, looked uh, back in our archives earlier today, and you did a tremendous piece uh, with Danielle DiMartino Booth uh, in April, April 8th specifically, of 2020. And what was so striking about it to me uh, was the tone of the conversation. You were having this conversation we were showing in overlays, uh, some of the pictures of the healthcare workers, uh, yep. you know, who'd been working for 28-hour shifts and all of these things. Uh, there was a little bit of a, a bug at the bottom of the screen that said, you know, if you'd like to donate, here are some places that you can get involved. I went and looked up the total deaths on April 8th, 2020, were 2,051. Here we are on February 3rd, February 2nd, the most recent day for which data is available, 3,486 deaths, a 70% increase. And there is not the sense of urgency in the country, in the culture, in the media that there was in April of 2020. You know, Ashes, you're, 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 you're so right. We've become so inured to it. It was a note I wrote back in May about this is what happens when something becomes not a pandemic, but endemic, when it becomes everywhere. Yeah. Right? It, it, uh, it, it just, it just, and look, I feel it too. I, I don't know. I bet you do too, Ash. I'm, I am so sick and tired <laughs> of, the, of, of everything COVID related. I'm sick of it. Yeah, but what keeps bringing me back, Ash, and this is the the reason we recorded that that session with 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 Danielle is that starting in March we started distributing, purchasing, and distributing N95 masks, uh, and then giving them away to doctors, nurses, uh, EMTs, firemen, policemen, uh, all across the country, and I, I really thought we'd be done with that project by now. Yeah, but. The sad truth is, to your point, Ash, is that every day we get more and more requests from healthcare professionals, from first responders who don't have access to the simple uh, armor that they need to help us, right? To to to, to serve us in 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 the jobs that they do. Yeah. To date, and these numbers are crazy. To date. Well, as of the end of, of February, we have distributed over 200,000 N95 masks mm. in batches of 100 and 200 straight to individual teams. We don't give them to hospital systems. We don't give them to you know, state emergency authorities in big batches. We send them directly to the people who, who need them. And I'd love to be able to tell you that that, that was waning. Right. Frankly, 
it's gotten better in the sense that we don't get requests now from uh, ER departments, right? We don't get emergency requests from major metropolitan hospitals, but we're getting so many more requests from a, um, you know, a pediatric cancer unit, mm-hmm. right? A, 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 a long-term care facility, a, a, a clinic at a, a, at, at a prison or a correctional institute, we still a year into this, and we don't have those that that basic protection and armor for the people who are on the front lines fighting this. It's um, it's hard to take sometimes, Ash. It really is. Yeah, it's extraordinary. You know, first Ben, it's a great act of philanthropy and giving back to the country, but also it keeps your finger on the pulse of exactly what's happening and exactly where the yeah. issues are. Look, developing a vir- a, a vaccine for RNA viruses is a very difficult scientific undertaking. Manufacturing paper masks is not. It's crazy. It's crazy right now. To to be fair, the N95 masks it, it's it's not a paper substance. It's a uh uh, it's a a blast. Uh, sorry, it's basically a plastic in a certain more mm-hmm. so to to really prevent you know ninety five percent below a uh, you know above a certain micron level to prevent it coming through. Right. But 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 you're right, Ash. It's not. Uh, this is not rocket science. This is not developing a vaccine. This is not putting right. a man on the moon. This is making a freaking mask, right? right. Where it costs about a hundred grand to buy and purchase the equipment to make these masks. And frankly, we do make a ton of these masks. We make millions of these masks. It's not just the manufacturing process. It's also the distribution process. We've had uh, a political administration that's not been willing to take the steps necessary to to authorize the, the Defense Production Act to force companies like Honeywell, 3M, to not just open up their their manufacturing facilities but even more importantly open up their distribution facilities mm. anyway we go on and on about this it it, it remains frankly a, a national tragedy in my view uh it's the one thing we should have gotten right here basic stuff right uh but um uh, we haven't yet we haven't yet ben do you see any improvement with the with the changing of the guard with the new administration coming in? Are there any green shoots, rays of sunshine, or hope that suggest that this is something that will be mobilized? Well, it couldn't be worse. I, I mean, I mean, they couldn't do worse than the prior administration. Let's just, you know, I'll be very blunt about that. In the the things that I care about, they could not be worse, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, are they, have they gotten better? Yeah, I think so. Look, look where they are focused. However, and I get this, is in trying to fix the the, the vaccination uh, program, and that right. is the most important thing. That is job one because we are in a race right now. It's really a race, and I and I and I think you know we were the first ones to be writing about this. We're in a race between the variant spread. It's here. It's doubling every week. It's more virulent. It's it, it's also more. Um, lethal it really is um and that combination makes me believe that uh, you know although we're seeing absolutely and this is great news cases hospitalizations are going down because we're past that holiday surge my belief is we've got one more surge ahead of us and it's going to be the worst yet now you ask about the, the the new administration Part of what I mean by the complacency that we that, that we see here in in the media and the way people are thinking about it, 
frankly, part of the complacency is just an inchoate, ha, ah, we've got a new administration. They'll mm-hmm. get it right. They'll right. fix it and it'll be fine. Like I say, I think there, there's, there's clearly a difference with a new administration. But this kind of what I'm seeing a lot of is, okay, we trust, you know, Team Biden, yay. You know, that'll take care of it. And it doesn't take care of it. The biology of this virus, the impact of social distancing behaviors, they are inexorable. And this is not, I'm not talking about doing more lockdowns. What I'm talking about is doing more on a personal basis to maintain that distancing, to mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to wear a mask, frankly. Right? These are things that we can all do and they work. This, I'm talking about doing things to avoid lockdowns because that's what has happened in every country that has seen a surge of the B117. Whether you're pretty far along in your vaccination policy like Israel was or whether you weren't far along like the UK and Ireland were. Look, the, the biology of this virus, the high school math of what a greater R number means means this is not the time for us in our personal lives to be, okay, yay, Team Biden, it's all going to be fine. Conversely, that actually puts a little bit of an opportunity in markets because markets are highly complacent about this. Yeah. But, um, but, but more importantly for me is I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that what I see coming down the pike in terms of this B117 surge does not come to pass. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that the complacency of markets is correct uh, but I don't think it is. Yeah. You know, you've made such an important point here. I tend to think of it as in three parts. You have the reality on the ground of what's happening with the virus. Then you have the real economy and its impact from the virus. And then you have the pricing mechanism in markets. How do you think about those three things? Or do you have a different model that you sure. use to think about? No, no, no. Look, the, 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 the gulf between real world and market world has never been greater. Mm-hmm. And so this is exactly why I say, even with a what I think is coming down the pike, a renewed surge in real world with terrible consequences from public health in, in terms of life, in terms of you know real world jobs, you know real world health, you know does that affect market world? I don't know that it does a lot and mm. and, and I find that tragic, frankly. Uh, and 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 long term, I, I find that terribly damaging to everything about our society. This gulf between market world and real world, real world. But there it is, man. When 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 you're responsible for other people's money or or you know your your own money, you have to deal with what is. And I and I do think that this gulf between market world and real world will insulate risk assets from this this the the surge that I see coming up. There is one thing that I think that, that that breaks the complacency entirely for markets, though, and that would be if the vaccine resistance that we're seeing, for example, in the South African strand, the Brazilian strand, if those variants, and they're not today, they're here in the United States, but they're not expanding at a rate like the B117, the UK variant, where they're going to be everywhere, you know, and, and at an accelerating rate. But that story, and because in other countries this is not the case, that they are prevalent, these these strands like the Brazilian strand, the South African strand, these are the things that I think that not just in the United States, but in other countries around the world can totally break 
whatever market supportive narratives are out there. And so when I look, for example, at, you know, emerging market, much less frontier market investing, that's that that seems to be to be a place where there is no narrative or 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 gulf between market world and real world. Uh, yeah. But for broader risk assets in the US, we we still, even with a B117 variant spread, I think have this great divide between real world and market world. Yeah. You know, you touched on something that's incredibly important, and I know it's early and the data isn't in, but from what you're seeing, Ben, from the numbers, what sort of resistance to the vaccines, uh, the multiple vaccines that we have out there, uh, when you do that matrix of the different strains uh, versus the different vaccines, what level of efficacy are we seeing? Yeah, so the we've got a couple of tests now for the South African variant, which is really the only one where we're seeing uh, any sort of of de- market deterioration in vaccine efficiency. What you did see in in Israel, so uh, putting this aside, what you did see in Israel where they had a real problem with the B117 virus variant was that just getting one shot of a two shot dose didn't get, seem to give the same level of protection that we saw in the clinical trials. So there's there's that with the B117. Looks like for the two dose regimens, you need both both doses. But the real issue here is, you know, what is the vaccine efficacy for that uh, South African variant? And we've seen slightly different results, different places. These are all lab results. We don't have clinical results yet out there. But in in general, you're seeing basically, you know, 50 to 60 percent efficacy against the, the 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 South African variant, which is technically effective, right? So the, the 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 technical definition of efficacy they set was okay. If you can present, you know, serious rep- health repercussions in 50% of the people who get the vaccine versus people who don't, we're going to call that. Yeah, go for it. It can make a difference. That said, you know, 50% versus 90%, 95%, like we're seeing against the, the baseline vir- uh, virus, that's a big difference. Yeah. That's a, that, that, that really is a big difference. So this the, the South African virus is not the vaccine, you know, escape route, right? It's, it's still got some efficacy. And this is great news. We think that there's the opportunity to do boosters and, and variations on the vaccine pretty quickly to deal with this. What you've seen started, though, with the South African and the Brazilian variant is now the story, though, that, yeah, we might not be out of the woods yet, that the, the, the vaccines, they're, they're, this really is a race with the vaccines, not just in this country, but around the world. And what's next? What's next in terms of the, vac- uh, the, the virus mutations and how quickly can we respond? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. I, I know that there was also some discussion about uh, the UK variant being uh, more transmissible. Uh, as well as deadlier, that seems like the worst case scenario. Well, it's definitely more transmissible. So there, there, there's very little 
there's there's no doubt about that, right? Um, there have been, and this is weird. The truth is, it is also more lethal. We've got now five studies that show about a 30% increase in lethality with B117. We have no studies that show it is the same lethality. The The story originally, oh, it's the same, was based on a Public Health England study that has since been revised to say, oh, yeah, actually, we're seeing increased lethality there, too. But here's the thing, Ash. Increased lethality, that's that's the, the story around that. It gets everyone nervous, right? Oh, my God, right? The increased transmissibility is so much more damaging than increased lethality. Mm. Uh, because, and again, this is the high school math. This is the way exponential transmission yeah. works, right? So that that you know, changing that R number from you know 1.4 to 2.0, which is basically what I think the this this virus can do, the variant can do. It means like after like. 10 doublings, right? You're not at 2,000 cases, you're at 2 million cases, right? Yeah. That's the power of exponential functions. And, you know, it's the power of high school math. So it's, it's, you, you read about this stuff, you say, oh, okay, it's more transmissible. So what? Oh, it's more lethal. Oh my God. I worry so much less about the increased lethality. That's obviously problematic. As you say, it's the combination, though. It's that right. increased transmissibility and the, the sharp spikes that that can create and how many people get infected, that's the real, I think, race we're against here in the United States. Yeah. You know, Ben, when you talk about the disconnect between market world and real world, uh, I instantly fill in the gap in my head and think central bank policy. Well, I would, I would say it's, it's, that's, I would say it more generally. I say what fills the gap between real world and market world? Narrative and storytelling, mm. right? The, on a macro scale, I think you're right. Uh, you know, uh, the Fed's forward communications, right? Forward guidance, communication policy, the words they use, the narratives about the Fed's got your back, and you know, you know what 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 are their intentions? That absolutely right. But you also see this on a micro scale, Ash, right? Mm -hmm. So so it's not just at the big macro level of what's the Fed's doing, what's the Fed doing. It's at every level of markets. It's 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 every CEO who now knows the words to use in their earnings call, right? Who now knows the story they need to tell when they go on CNBC. Right. right. It it's every it's every journalist, it's every talking head who says, Oh, I I know how to play the game now, and the game is to use your words not for what you may truly believe, but for the effect, the impact you think it will have on the listener. It's in politics, it's in markets, it's everywhere we see this gulf between real world and market world at both the macro level, for sure, but also at the micro level. Yeah. When you, you know, look, and, and I'm not being overly critical of the Fed, it seems as though uh, the Fed is acting because they are the only folks who pick up the phone at two o'clock in the morning. They're like the fire brigade. Uh, and uh, but when you look at some of those numbers, you know, specifically, you look at the Fed balance sheet, you look at the expansion of the M2. Do you get concerned uh, about the potential uh, to distort some of the price signals in this market and the risk of sowing greater bubbles 
greater instability in financial markets and in the real economy as we look forward? Yeah, you know, mechanistically, I don't. What I mean by that is M2, money supply, reserves, I don't get worked up about it, right? So so these things, <laughs> you know, it, yes, it's like nitroglycerin there, but but it, it it's like, it's it's in the the salt mines down in you know Louisiana the salt caverns. What 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 mechanistically what matters is when that money gets out into the real economy and you get a velocity of money, where right. you get real lending, where you get real borrowing demand for that in the real economy. And that ain't happening, Ash. Yeah. And 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 that makes me really sad, frankly, because it is that engine, that fire of productivity growth, of investment in again real world, people, you, know, you know, capital plant, equipment, personnel, right? That's what makes an economy grow. Yeah. And and I do believe, and this is not the the mechanistic side. This is the the narrative side. This is the policy side. Zero interest rates. When you're a corporation who can hit your targets, who can transfer hundreds of millions of dollars to management, you know, in a in a given S and P 500 company, billions and billions of dollars overall in the economy. Why in the world would you ever take a chance? Why in the world would you ever invest? in a new product or a new factory or a new, you know, people. Why? <laughs> right. Yeah. When, when you, with, 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 when money is free, I can financialize, I can create a story where if I have any sort of growth prospects, no matter how far in the future, your DCF model, your discounted cash flow model is going to show you should be valued to infinity. You know, this is Tesla. Right. This is this is this is every company that's got the story. Yeah. So, yes and no to your question. Yes, I blame the Fed terribly. You know, why don't we should be critical of the Fed? I, I, I mean, but it's not because of you know M two or or something like that. It's not because of the mechanistic. Oh, there's that balance sheet. Yeah. It's because in a in a ZERP policy, it changes the risk taking attitude of every private corporation in the United States. And that's the real tragedy. Yeah. I should point out that people who are supportive of ultra accommodative monetary policy believe that when the velocity of the M2, for example, picks up, that the Fed knows very well how to soak up that additional liquidity uh, before interest rates begin and inflation begins to get out of control. So the argument goes. So the argument goes. I, I'll, I'll tell you, though, you know, that genie you know, of, of inflation, you let it out of the bottle. And it's not because it's not going to come out of the bottle just from the Fed. Where it's going to come out of the bottle is through fiscal spending, right? It's going to come out of the bottle with some version of MMT where you've got whatever. Uh, and this has been the same with the Trump administration. They were going to do a $2 trillion plan. They would have called it, you know, MAGA bill instead of a green bill, right? But um, but But that's where this happens is when, you know, the... The inflation comes out of, of, of financial assets, and when it gets into the real economy, that's what lets the genie out of the bottle. And yeah, the Fed says, oh, we got all the tools to control it. 
No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. You've built the you've built this massive Maginot line against deflationary events, right? And uh, you know, just like the Maginot line, if the if the tanks come through the forest, if we have inflationary pressures, yeah, that 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 Maginot line ain't going to do you all. But it is going to do anything for you. By the way, that's the second Maginot line uh, metaphor of the week. <laughs> I did use it on Tuesday, a slightly different context, but oh man, that's great. Absolutely. You know, it's also so interesting, the point that you make of whether you call the bill, uh, you know, make America great again, or you call it the Green New Deal. You know, we're so incredibly uh, hyper partisan in this country. And yet the risks, the economic impact, these are structural and not political. Pretty much. Yeah. I I, I mean, there, look, it it does make a difference. The politics do make a difference in, in whether it's a you know, two trillion dollar package from the the White House or a four trillion dollar package, sure. right? It does make a difference. Uh, it does make a difference if there's a uh, a tax, a, a new tax bill that, that's able to to to, to get passed. Um, you know, all those things matter. Politics does cash out here, but in general, you're right. The there, there is such a powerful, you know, regardless of politics. Um, move towards to continue really treating markets and money as a political utility mm-hmm. that that ain't going to stop. Yeah. You know, the other thing that struck me earlier when you were talking about CEOs, one of the concerns that I have is that we, we now exist in a culture where there are two distinct classes uh, of businesses in America. There are folks who have access to the public debt markets and yep. folks who don't. And if you are a corner store, corner restaurant, dry cleaner, small business in a small town or, or in a big city, you just don't have access to that. And is there a risk uh, of this great consolidation of wealth and power and market power? A risk? I, I mean, for sure, right? Is 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 that an imminent risk? I mean, again, we're talking about that gulf between real world and market world. Uh, it's never been more valuable to management to be part of a publicly traded company, which is why, you know, every private company in the world says, "Pick me, pick me," to one of these spacs that's running around. Right. Um, <laughs> look, is it a risk? These things get cashed out in politics eventually. We're seeing elements of that today my 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 view is as these things continue we ain't seen nothing yet in the way that this can get cashed out in politics uh so to me it's not just a risk it's a certainty of political upheaval particularly against the backdrop of the stress that the covid disaster has has had in ter- in the in the real world right and Last point on this, it's not just the United States that faces these pressures, right? It's it's every country on earth, particularly the ones that have what I would describe as a weak state, the ones that don't have the steam valves to let off this political pressure through through open and, 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 and fair elections. You know, I was writing last year that I thought, you know, they're real – I really don't – my, what I said last summer was, I don't think Putin lasts through 2021. That was my black swan thing. And I got so much crap about that, you know, but, but now you look at it and you think, hmm, right? You know, we saw what happened with Burma. You know, you're seeing what's happening with so many countries. I think Iran is a, another one where you could absolutely see a regime change this year. Uh, because all these dynamics we're talking about, 
that exists in the United States and will need will 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 come back ultimately to be terribly damaging to us. We're seeing them happening right now in other countries as well. So is it a risk? Of course, more than a risk, I think it's a certainty. Mm. Ben, you just mentioned SPACs. I'm curious about your view. I know you've been writing about it, you've been on Twitter. Uh, Your view of SPACs, meme stocks, GameStop, AMC, all of these incredibly, uh, you know, they become not just financial news stories, but mainstream news stories where, uh, you know, folks who have no interest in financial markets are talking about them. What do you make of all of this? See, how can I put this uh, kindly? I can't. All right. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll say it. The, the um, narrative, the story that what we've seen around uh, Wall Street bets, what we what we see in SPACs, the story is that, that this is a democratization of markets is bullshit. And the people who are presenting that as their message are bullshitters. Um, I can't say it nicely, so I just had to say it that way. Uh, that it is just, it's another story. It's It's what Wall Street has always been frankly, what I think it'll always be is the creation of these stories to get, to get the rube in, to, 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 to pay up. Um, you know, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's my story on SPACs and, uh, and, and Reddit and, and I'm sticking to it. Do I, do I, do I like what Wall Street did in reaction to Reddit, right? To, to change the, capital posting rules at the clearinghouse overnight, right? To give Stevie and Gabe and all their guys a day to throw the ballast over overboard and trim their sails so they could survive. No, that's bullshit too, <laughs> right? Um, there's a lot of it to go around. And, but, but what, what really eats at me I'll use a $10 word because it's, you know, it's cat on a hot tin roof. It's the mendacity <laughs> of the people who say either, oh, no, this, you know, it's our liberty. You know, this is the best of all possible worlds that we give all our money to Ken Griffin. Right. Or, or but similarly, it's the people say, oh, no, we need a transaction tax now. That's clearly what we need to do here. Or, oh, no, this is the democratization of markets. And by the way, uh, come put your money into my SPAC or into my ETF of SPACs. Right. I, I, I call them raccoons. Right. I, I, I mean, they are huckster animals that are. That, that financial service is frankly infested with. Always has been, always will be, but by golly, if you see it, you got to call it out. Yeah, I hope something come, some good comes of it. I hope that we have uh, a generation of young people in their 20s uh, who are learning about uh, who are learning about markets earlier than I did. Uh, but look, this is something right on. a lot of people are going to get hurt. A lot of people have been hurt. But yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, Welcome to the world, man. You know, these people are not your friends, right? These people are not your friends. You are being used. You're not being um, treated as an autonomous uh, human being. You're being used as fodder. Uh, and and that, was, that was clearly true in the, the, 
you know the the game. So look, we went back. We we've been analyzing the the language, the linguistics of what you saw on Wall Street bets, and and what you see is that about a couple of months ago, the language changed, the linguistics changed. Mm-hmm. There was absolutely, absolutely a planned effort. I, I liken it to the I call it the the the, the snowball theory of markets to start a snowball at the top of the hill to, to be positioned for where that snowball could end up where the avalanche could end up and try to start rolling some snowballs down the hill you don't know which of these snowballs is going to take or which is going to click as a meme right but you do it enough one of them is going to click hmm. and this democratization you know to the moon diamond hands stick it to the man by buying you know GameStop calls, right? This this was this was absolutely a plan, you know. It's it's it, it wasn't it didn't happen organically, and it sure ain't part of some democratic, you know, uprising. Yeah, you know, Ben. I, my, my final question for you uh, on markets is, you know, you, you talk about uh, you talk about the high school math. You talk about looking at things basically. You know, for me, when I I'm curious about what the impact of all of this has been on broader valuations on U.S. equity markets. Simple chart, and I think we can pull it up. If you look at the five year chart of the S and P, what you see is basically the same slope continuing from five years ago to where we are today. There's a sharp divot, a crevasse that forms uh, in spring of last year when COVID uh, first hit the U.S., but the yep. slope of that chart basically unchanged. Yeah, look, man, I, I mean, we've seen, we've, seen, we've seen multiple expansion. That's, what that, that, that's what's driving the prices here because that's that, <clears throat> what is a multiple? A multiple is a story. A multiple is a story. And again, you see that at a macro level. What's the story? You see it at a micro level. What's the what's the multiple on this on this on this company? This is the business of Wall Street, right? To create the stories that make you believe that this is the right multiple to pay on, you know, earnings or revenues or sales, whatever it is you're calculating the multiple against. What you see when you see that 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 slope, that that up and to the right slope. Yeah is my view just the growing reliance and obedience we have to storytelling to narrative so that's why i try to do research on and that's what we're all about so ben uh if we put you in charge what is the meta narrative you think the country most needs to grapple with most needs to understand and most needs to digest in order to get uh, a view of reality that corresponds to their model Um, I think the most important thing, and I'll use a poker analogy here, right, is, um, you know, it's the old line that if you don't know who the sucker is at the table after 30 minutes, it's you. (laughs) The, the, the important thing here is not to stop playing poker, not to say, oh my God, the game's rigged and I'm out of here. It's not to, you know, go off the grid and, you know, live out in the, the the wilds of Alaska. Hmm. The important thing here is to preserve some distance in your mind and in your heart uh, between yourself and what you are told. To recognize that 
everything in markets and everything in politics is somebody shaking their finger at you and trying to tell you how to think about the world. What multiple should you put on this? What is the story we're going to put around markets or this election or what have you? And it's not to say you don't, you know, you don't act in markets and elections. You vote, you invest, you do all that. But you don't take these stories into your heart. Hmm. You maintain a critical distance so that you maintain your autonomy of mind. That, that if, if there's one message out there, it's to do that, to think critically about everything you, 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 you read in here. Not to criticize it, but to think critically. Why am I reading this now? Why am I hearing this now? And if I step back, is this something that I think fits with high school math, right? With, with germ theory, right? With, uh, you know, name your, name your, your, your scientific principle, your, your, your principle of the real world doesn't fit. So that would be the one message I'd say is, is for everyone to not be the sucker at the table. Ben, very well said. My lesson in terms of 30 minutes is that 30 minutes is not enough to have Ben Hunt on a show. <laughs> but we hope you come back and join us again on Real Vision Daily Briefing. Anytime, Ash. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Bitcoin in the real world, the one-day online event we are co-hosting with BlockFi, starts tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. BlockFi, of course, are one of our important Real Vision crypto partners, and tomorrow's event is a must-attend for anyone who's interested in Bitcoin. I'm especially excited to talk with Caitlin Long and SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce. Other notables appearing tomorrow are Rao Pal, Zach Prince, and Pomp. It's absolutely free, but you do need to register at realvision.com forward slash BlockFi to save your seat. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.